There is a trend in scholarship and the media to rewrite what we know about Jesus. What often results is distortion. This is Evidence and Answers with author, speaker, and Christian apologist Pat Zucharin. Today, Pat interviews a leading specialist on the New Testament and gets to the bottom of this effort to fabricate Jesus. Today, you'll be equipped to answer those who would claim that the Bible is unreliable and that the message of Jesus is lost. And I want to invite you to go to Pat's website, evidenceandanswers.org, for resources for everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. And stay tuned for a special offer at the end of today's program. Here's Pat Zucharin with his special guest. Thanks, Kevin. We've got a fascinating topic and a great guest with us here. First time on our show, and I've read a lot of his material, and we're just glad to have him. We have Dr. Craig Evans, who is the Distinguished Professor of New Testament at the Acadia Divinity College in Wolfville, Nova Scotia. Dr. Evans, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. Well, Dr. Evans, the title of your book is Fabricating Jesus. Why did you need to write a book titled Fabricating Jesus? What's going on here? Well, this book is attempting to address a larger phenomenon, not just one particular book. It isn't going after, say, Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code or something like that. What it's trying to do is deal with a trend that's been going on in scholarship for 20 years or so. We see it in the Jesus Seminar, for example, in other contexts, too, where a new Jesus is being cooked up, fabricated, fashioned. Gospels are being distorted. Strange sources are being used. And so we end up with a new Jesus, oftentimes just in time for Easter. And this book speaks to that and tries to explain in a way that non-experts can understand, anybody who can read a newspaper can read and understand this book, just try to explain what is going on and how is Jesus fabricated? How are the Gospels distorted? And of 10 or 11 chapters, look at the various ways some of these books published in recent years do just that. Now, is this revision of the historical Jesus a new phenomenon, or is it a repeat of old arguments with a new kind of twist? Well, it's a, a lot of it is a repeat of old arguments, but a lot of it is genuinely new. I mean, I don't want to be overly negative. I mean, there's been a lot of exciting discoveries made. I mean, you've got the Dead Sea Scrolls, which we've been talking about for more than half a century. You've got the Nag Hammadi books found in Egypt as well, Gnostic writings, and there have been all kinds of advances in archaeology. And so, uh, you know, in a way, it is time to do fresh, original, interpretive work, to take another look at the Gospels and, and the rest of the New Testament, for that matter, because we're in a position to understand things a whole lot better. And uh, the, this, the downside is that some have jumped into the arena and have decided to give an awful lot of credence the second and third century writings, writings that are at least a hundred years later than the New Testament Gospels, and claim that they're of equal validity or equal historical worth, and they give us a new picture of Jesus, and it's just as valid as the traditional picture of Jesus found in the first century Gospels. And so it's a mixed bag. There are good things that have been happening and real progress, and on the other hand, fresh opportunities to do strange odd things, and that's happening too. Now, you mentioned in book that there are two schools of skeptics, the old school skeptics and the new school skeptics. Now, what's the difference between the two, and why is this difference significant? Yeah, that's a good question, and I had to wrestle with it. When I started that chapter, I really wasn't thinking about taking that approach. But uh, that chapter, it's the first chapter, but it's the last one I wrote. And by the time I got to that point, I realized, you know, there's a big difference between people like Jim Robinson and uh, Bob Funk and some of the old-school skeptics, because 
at least you can understand what they're talking about. And maybe they're a little more skeptical than they need to be, and, and personal faith for them is an issue, a crisis of faith, whatever. That's an issue, too. But at least I understand these guys, and they don't opt for really strange theories. Uh, and, and what happens, you know, I don't agree with them, obviously. I disagree with a lot of things, but these, some of these new skeptics are really, really off the wall. And uh, I have in mind um, uh, the people I mentioned in that chapter, like Robert Price or uh, Bart Ehrman, but there other people could be mentioned too. And they're ones who say, I don't know if we even if there even was a historical Jesus, or there are so many uh, scribal errors in the New Testament manuscripts. I really don't know what Jesus really said. Dr. Evans, you know the media really is attracted to these guys because they're radical and they make sensational claims. Do you think that kind of maybe? breeds this kind of uh, sensationalistic view of a historical Jesus? Oh, I, I don't think there's any doubt about it. And what happens is because the media is interested in it, and you make headlines and you get interviewed in television programs because you say wild things, then that means major publishing houses are, are, are willing to publish your radical views because they think, well, you know, I publish this guy's view, I'll sell at least a couple hundred thousand copies of the book, maybe more than that. And so... Along comes Michael Bajan and his pseudo-scholarship claiming that he's found letters that Jesus wrote, denying his divinity, denying, in fact, that he even died, was, you know, escaped his crucifixion. I mean, it's absurdity, and yet major publishing houses will publish those kind of books, and that certainly is an inducement to uh, put forward radical, excessive, uh, not well-founded or well-thought-through scholarship and, you know, and it sells, and it gets, grabs the headlines, and I think it does feed on itself. Now, there's two scholars here that you mentioned that we're hearing a lot about now, Bart Ehrman and Robert Price. Why don't you tell us a little bit about those two? Well, both of them, what they have in common is that uh, at one time they were fairly conservative Christians. And then for whatever reason, and, uh, and of course, you know, I hear things in the grapevine, and I'm very concerned about what I put in print, and so I just comment on things that they themselves say in their own published books, and not hallway gossip at, uh, you know, learned meetings where I hear other things. But anyway, for whatever reason, they start, sh they start moving away from uh, their faith, they move into another direction, and, and their scholarship gets very, very radical and very idiosyncratic. Price, of the two, Price is the one that's... Uh, really off the wall, and so he, he toys with the idea that perhaps Jesus didn't even exist. And I tell you, that kind of stuff is so kooky, that's right up there with Holocaust deniers. I mean, that's a real strange, I mean, you've got this mountain of evidence, never mind common sense and logic, that uh, argue altogether, certainly Jesus existed, and we probably do know uh, what he taught and what he did and so on. And yet, all of that's denied, thrown to the wind, uh, an extreme skepticism, which I don't think is critical or scholarly, uh, and, and it leads to these kinds of questions. Namely, we have no idea what Jesus taught or what he did, and uh, we don't even know if he existed. Now, that's Price. Ehrman isn't nearly that, that uh, skeptical. But what he argues is that, uh, you know, the gospel, Gospels are, are so full of scribal mistakes that we really don't know how well it's been transmitted. There are errors of various kinds. Who knows what Jesus really said, and uh, we know some things that he said, but we're in no position at all to, to have Christian faith, we have no, in no position to believe the apostolic witness 
to the resurrection. And so for, for Ehrman, it was just a collapse. He looks around the world. He sees uh, evil in the world. He sees injustice. He sees, you know, tragedy. And so he says, oh, I, you know, I, I don't even know if there's a God. So it becomes agnostic as a result. Now, Kevin and I debated some of Robert Price's disciples here, the one of the top atheist websites, the Rational Responders. And though he has some bizarre theories, they, his theories are taken seriously by the critics. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, I'd have to say which critics. His views are not taken very seriously by uh, what I would consider credibly trained, properly trained Bible scholars. I mean, you, you know, you've got Bible scholars who might be agnostic or atheist, but that doesn't mean that they, they get real goofy with the sources. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, but it's, it's on a pop level as well, because the movie that Robert Price is featured in called The God Who Wasn't There, which says that Jesus never existed, uh, mythical Jesus and so on, he's prominently featured in that film, and it was number one in its category on Amazon, and so this may be scoffed at at the, uh, in, in the critical uh, academia level, but it's on the lay level, they tend to embrace these guys. Oh, I know, and that's tragic. Of course, you're touching on an area that comes up with Dan Brown and the popularity of his book, The Da Vinci Code. As I know you know, uh, that, that book is just, you know, I realize it's a fictional murder mystery, but it's supposedly based on legitimate historical research and a very credible uh, new understanding of early church history and Jesus and what he was up to and his relationship with Mary Magdalene and all that. But as you well know, the whole thing, the whole premise that it rests on is largely fictional. There was no Priory of Zion. There, there, this Holy Grail quest and the Knights Templar and all that stuff was the stuff of myth and legend from the Middle Ages. It's bogus. Dan Brown didn't know any better. But what shocks me is that this kind of work, and that would include not quite as as silly, but it would include Robert Price's stuff, you know, it gains a lot of traction in the, in the public because the public doesn't know better. And that's what is very troubling to me. I mean, the, the general public is biblically illiterate. You go back 50, 60 years ago, and, and most people understood the basic themes of the Bible and thought a little more critically and were a little better read. Well, now not even the church, for the most part, many congregations are, are practically biblically illiterate as well. And so those kinds of goofy theories, I'm not surprised that they gain such traction and become number one this and that and the other thing in the popular arena. And I think what that does is a wake-up call for serious scholars to recognize that while we're writing our learned books read by dozens, Dan Brown writes books read by millions. Yes. And, and we got to deal with that. Mm. Mm. Very well said. Preach now, it. <laughs> Those who are trying to revive our understanding of Jesus allege that the four Gospels are not historically accurate. Now, what are the top two or three criticisms they use to support this kind of conclusion? That the uh, Gospels are not historical? Right. Okay, well, one of the arguments is is the Gospels are not always easily reconciled. And so they'll think, well, you know, they can't all be right. And and if they have uh, Peter denying Jesus in a different location when you compare John to the synoptics, or uh, when did Jesus cleanse the temple anyway? At the beginning of his ministry, as it seems to be said in John, or at the end of his ministry, as it is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? You know, those are the kind of things. And so they see some discrepancies like that. And so then they say, well, I don't know if I can believe that. And then there is an apologetic effort, after all. The Gospels weren't written purely for historical reasons and, <clears throat> and no other reason. They were written to argue for the faith, defend Christians against all sorts of charges, 
being lawbreakers or whatever, the charge, immoral, whatever. And so uh, New Testament writings have an apologetic edge, and we moderns today, and I'm saying we in a very inclusive sense, we don't like apologetic. You know, we want to be objective. We want to be at arm's length. We want to be, you know, uh, not personally invested in something, and that's very much in vogue in the university today. So we encounter a piece of uh, literature from 2,000 years ago that clearly is making a case, has an apologetic edge to it, and that bothers us. And so we say, well, if it, there's an apologetic agenda here, uh, you, you can't trust it. It can't be objective. It probably isn't being truthful or historical. And that's our bias. That's our hang-up being read into these documents from antiquity. So there are a lot of reasons like that. Some of it is just hypercriticism. So somebody notices just the least little change here or there, and then they, they, we will spin these big theories out of it. But I find, you know, that's out of step with most scholarship. When you go with people, you know, E.P. Sanders is no fundamentalist or no conservative by any means. Uh, Marcus Borg isn't either, and yet they, they see the Gospels for what they are, and they say, you know, they do accurately convey to us what Jesus taught and what he did. And even if you can't harmonize every single detail where you're still left with questions, that doesn't mean that the whole thing fizzles and falls apart and we have no idea. That's, that's, that's too extreme. There's a leap in logic there. Dr. Evans, there's something I want to chase on that for just a moment because I think it's relevant, and that is when I read Bart Ehrman and some of his articles and other things, he seemed to have a view of Scripture that was easily blown over by his reading. And therefore, it wasn't on a very good foundation. And now, this is just what I can read into it. He had a view of inspiration and of the Gospels that the chronology had to be absolutely in lockstep with no discrepancies whatsoever. Uh, you wouldn't demand that from any other ancient text, by the way. And then when uh, he started doing some reading, that rather tenuous view seemed to be just blown, blown over in the wind. And he became a full-blown skeptic. I know. It's just not necessary. Is that what I hear you saying? Yes, that's right. And, and Bart and I have emailed each other. He's a little unhappy uh, with the way I describe his view, and uh, he wanted me, he would have preferred that I said some other things like uh, his uh, disappointment and disillusionment over the, the grief and pain in the world and that kind of thing. And there, I think there's a very good answer to that. And I did consider writing an extra paragraph or two talking about that. Jim Robinson says something similar. He says, oh, he'd have lost his faith anyway, his traditional conservative faith, because after all, the Church didn't handle uh, uh, questions of uh, justice and, you know, and, and that sort of thing very well. And that's very gratuitous kinds of assertions. It also reveals gross ignorance in Church history anyway. But um, I, I agree with what you said. I think... Bart Ehrman grew up in a very conservative setting, uh, went to a very conservative school, uh, and evidently had a very, very rigid understanding of the inspiration of Scripture, its inerrancy, very rigid, and because just taking him on his own words, you know, not hallway gossip, but just looking at what he puts in misquoting Jesus, for example, he is troubled by stuff that I see as, as trifles. And that's what really is odd to me, and that's what I'm trying to respond to in my book. Maybe, you know, Ehrman and his thinking had other, other things that concern me, but my goodness, his loss of confidence in the integrity of Scripture, in the historicity of the Gospels, 
because of some of the things he points out, I just, I just uh, was blown away. So there had to be some kind of rigid, conservative view there that said, you know, there can't be any mistakes of any kind in Scripture if it's to be inspired, if it's to be trusted. He finds some mistakes, and he just, you know, he cashes in his chips. He's out of the game. Well, Dr. Evans, you know, uh, the old school and the new school skepticisms, uh, skeptical schools, argue that the Gnostic Gospels present historical facts about Jesus that may predate the four Gospels in the New Testament. Now, briefly summarize, who are the Gnostics, and what are these Gnostic Gospels they're referring to? Well, that's a huge debate. When I was at Claremont as a Ph.D. student, I was part of the Nagamati Seminar, and uh, I was not at the core of it, the center of it by any means. I was on the periphery, but I was part of it for a couple of years. And I was personally interested in this whole question, and that is, how early is Gnosticism anyway? And, you know, that is so slippery trying to define that. And that's because Gnosticism draws upon lots of theories, worldviews, philosophies, religious traditions. Uh, It's a grab bag. It's very eclectic. And so trying to to date something that has in it, in its system, stuff that could be as old as Zoroastrianism and its radical dualism, it becomes really difficult. My own view is even though there were streams of Gnosticism, theosophy, or whatever, in existence, as early as Christianity, there isn't anything that is Gnostic in the sense that we encounter in the early church's history until the second century. And what I think happened was uh, the preaching of Jesus as God's Son come down from heaven, saving the human race. I mean, that they loved it, they took it, and they made it work for their own theories. And so Jesus then became this Redeemer who descends from heaven and doesn't save through his death. Oh, no, he saves through his knowledge. And then uh, if he did die on the cross, which, of course, Gnostics will dispute, some of them anyway, the cross is just an opportunity for the Spirit of Jesus to return to heaven. It isn't, his death doesn't save. It's his knowledge and teaching. That's what saves. And so Gnosticism is really something from the second century and later. And their Gospels, I don't think, do help us very much, especially if we're talking about the historical Jesus. And to appeal to the Gospel of Thomas, where all the evidence suggests it was written in Syria toward the end of the second century, that is 100 years after Mark or Matthew, I think to appeal to... Uh, Thomas or other Gnostic writings as important sources for understanding historical Jesus, I think that's anachronistic and and just bad history. Let's expand on that a little bit, because the Gospel of Thomas is one that receives a lot of attention. I mean, John Dominic Croissant of the Jesus Seminar believes that this Gospel actually precedes the four Gospels, and that the four Gospels actually relied on the Gospel of Thomas for their work. Uh, Elaine Pagel, the Gnostic uh, scholar believes that the traditions from the Gospel of Thomas predate the four Gospels, but your book, you present some very compelling reasons for a late second century date for this work. Could you uh, expand on that some more? <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, that, to me, is one of the biggest mysteries going. You're laughing, I, uh, you're laughing because we mentioned Elaine Pagels, I think. Uh, <laughs> She's, like she's, she's an, well, she's another one of those rather radical type, uh, out-of-the-mainstream scholars, I, I, I would think. She is a very respected Gnostic scholar, okay. I would say, but um, 
I just, I mean, she and I completely disagree on this question. There's just no getting around it. And uh, so she, and she's very outspoken. She'll just say, well, Professor Evans is quite wrong. You know, she'll come right out and say that. But uh, the challenge uh, for uh, Elaine Pagels, Marvin Meyer, and a few others uh, who are into Gnostic studies, and I respect them as Coptic scholars and interpreters of uh, Coptic Gnostic texts and so on. They are competent people, and most of their research I would consider as solid and not ob- objectionable. It's just in a few areas where, in my view, they turn a blind eye to evidence that screams out, that says, hey, this document comes from a very late period of time. And the Gospel of Thomas, what's so interesting about it is it really is datable. There are so many indicators. Uh, I don't have time to review them here, and I, I lay them out in Chapter 3 of the book but there are so many indicators that say this writing came from the end of the second century. And one of the, the most compelling arguments, in my view, is that it appears to be dependent on Tatian's diatessaron, that is Tatian's harmony of the four Gospels, which was first written in Syriac, in Syria, we think around 175 A.D. Thomas knows it and uses it. And so how you can say, well, Thomas actually is a middle mid-first century writing earlier than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I just find that preposterous, and most gospel scholars agree. And so it's just a handful of Gnostic scholars who say that Thomas can be put in the first century uh, or some form of it. Most gospel scholars don't buy it. Yeah, Kevin, you know, reading this book, I think if you just got this book for chapter 3 itself would be worth the price. Mm-hmm. It's one of the best I've heard on a case for the late date of the Gospel of Thomas. And, you know, I, I had to interject here. When I went to Claremont, was part of the uh, Nagamati Gnostic uh, Seminar, I bought into the idea that Thomas was late first century. I mean, I was very open to the possibility. Of first century. I was highly skeptical because of its non-Palestinian flavor. I didn't think it was as early as some were trying to say. But uh, upon further reflection and further study, I... I by the 1980s, I no longer was using Thomas in my historical Jesus work. And by the 1990s, I was beginning to vigorously dispute it, saying, look, guys, if you're going to study the historical Jesus, use, your, use the Dead Sea Scrolls, use archaeology, be familiar with the land of Israel and all that. But the Gospel of Thomas isn't going to help you. There's just too much about it. And when I revisited the question just in the last two or three years, I realized, uh, thanks to uh, uh, Nicholas Perrin's work and, and some other writings relating to Syriac tradition, Thomas has got to be coming out of the late 2nd century, out of Eastern Christianity. It has nothing to do with Palestine. It was written very likely in Syriac, based on uh, Tatian. It is so late, it is, it was, it's just ridiculous that people try to uh, pull it into the middle of the 1st century it is an example of anachronism in the extreme. Yes, we're talking with Dr. Craig Evans, professor of New Testament at Acadia Divinity College in Wolfville, Nova Scotia. And the book we're talking about, a great book you need to get, Fabricating Jesus. Uh, Dr. Evans, thanks for being with us this week. We look forward to hearing from you next week as well. 
Oh, you're very welcome. We want to thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerin on this timely topic and remind you that you can get this entire series at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find some of the best resources on presenting and defending your faith in Christ to an increasingly skeptical world at evidenceandanswers.org. World religions, atheism, the cults, the occult, apologetics, scientific and philosophical arguments for the existence of God, creation and evolution, the reliability of the Bible, archaeology and history, and the end times, to name but just a few. You'll find Pat Zuckerman's interviews with leading scholars and speakers on the most crucial issues facing the church and the world. Go to evidenceandanswers.org and be equipped. Evidence and Answers is supported by you, the listener, who appreciates a program that gives good answers to good questions. Our calling is to do what the Apostle Paul did on Mars Hill in Athens. He presented and defended the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll help you do the same by the grace of God. Just go to evidenceandanswers.org and any gift or purchase of resources will be a tremendous encouragement to us. And remember that this entire series is available at evidenceandanswers.org. Thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerin. God bless and thanks so much for listening. evidenceandanswers.org.